Welcome back to Freud in Focus with Tom DeRose and me, Jamie Ruers. It's good to be back after so many months. This week, we'll be discussing Constructions in Analysis, a late paper by Freud, a short paper in three parts, which will be his final completed paper on the psychoanalytic technique. It's also important because it's the last time that he uses this famous archaeological metaphor that we came across in Civilization and its Discontents. I'm just throwing that term out there, the archaeological metaphor, for now, but, but don't worry, we will elaborate on it very shortly. This paper is particularly relevant to us at the Freud Museum right now in relation to our current exhibition, Freud's Antiquity Object, Idea, Desire, which is on display until the 16th of July. If you can't make it, you'll be pleased to know that there is also a comprehensive digital archive that can be accessed through the Freud Museum's website, freud.org.uk. But before we get into that archaeological metaphor, Tom, could you situate us in terms of where Freud is in his career when he writes this and what the general thesis of the paper is? Well, yeah, thanks, Jamie. And hello, everyone. It is certainly good to be back. Now, Constructions in Analysis, as you mentioned, is one of Freud's final works published in December 1937. So the same year as Analysis Terminable and Interminable. And just over a year before Freud's iconoclastic work, Moses and Monotheism. It's also only around three months before the Anschluss, when Austria was annexed by Nazi Germany, which of course led to the closing down of the International Psychoanalytical Publishing House in Vienna, to Anna Freud being interrogated by the Gestapo, and eventually to the Freud family fleeing Vienna for London on the 4th of June, 1938. So it was published very much under this impending catastrophe. And Constructions in Analysis is not only late in chronological terms, but it also shares certain characteristics with Moses and monotheism and with analysis terminable and interminable of what Edward Said would call the late style. They're all kind of difficult texts that seem to offer the reader more problems and puzzles rather than solutions. It is, as you mentioned, a paper that takes the discussion of technique as its point of departure. But the argument takes us down very many different pathways. I think we're, we're used to that by now with Freud, aren't we? In this text, we find him elaborating on some of the themes that endure throughout his writing. The vicissitudes of memory, the elusive search for the original past, and the very nature of truth itself. So it's a small text with very large implications. Where Freud begins, before we get to the mention of archaeology, is the question of the truth value of psychoanalysis. The accusation has been raised that psychoanalysis is a practice that is formulated under the condition of heads I win, tails you lose. So, if the patient agrees with an analytic interpretation or says yes, then all well and good. But if the patient disagrees or says no, then they must be resisting. So how can we evaluate the truth of, an of a psychoanalyst's interpretations? 
This is where Freud really starts from. How does an analyst arrive at an assessment of the patient's yes or their no? Now, Freud zones in here on the aim and process of working with patients. So the analyst aims at replacing repressions that developed in early childhood with reactions that would be more in keeping with psychical maturity. Now, to do this, the patient must be encouraged to recall past experiences and affective impulses connected with them. Present symptoms and inhibitions, Freud reminds us, are substitutes for the things that have been forgotten. But what do patients actually remember and reveal to their analysts in their sessions? Freud suggests that they offer fragments of these memories in dreams, which are invariably seriously distorted. They bring forth ideas through free association, which offer allusions to repressed material. They also give us hints of repetitions of affects connected to repressed material. And particularly, this happens through the transference. The analyst is never then presented with the past in its original unmediated sense. They work with fragments, encoded messages that have to be pieced together into some kind of narrative form that have to be constructed. It's at this point that Freud draws on the field of archaeology in order to illustrate the process. Thank you. That's really helpful to see actually, you know, firstly, where Freud was in terms of like the wider cultural, uh, wider cultural context, but also in his sort of personal life and in the career um, and in the sort of formulation of psychoanalysis as well. Well, let's turn to the text now. Let's read the passage. It's a long passage where Freud compares psychoanalysis to archaeology. Um, now, if you're interested in finding this at home, it's in the standard edition number 23. And it's page 259. His work of construction, or if it is preferred, of reconstruction, resembles to a great extent an archaeologist's excavation of some dwelling place that has been destroyed and buried, or of some ancient edifice. The two processes are in fact identical except that the analyst works under better conditions and has more material at his command to assist him. Since what he is dealing with is not something destroyed, but something that is still alive. And perhaps for another reason as well. But just as the archaeologist builds up the walls of the building from the foundations that have remained standing, determines the number and position of the columns from depressions in the floor and reconstructs the mural decorations and paintings from the remains found in the debris, so does the analyst proceed when he draws his inferences from the fragments of memories, from the associations, and from the behavior of the subject of the analysis. Both of them have an undisputed right to reconstruct by means of supplementing and combining the surviving remains. Both of them, moreover, 
are subject to many of the same difficulties and sources of error. One of the most ticklish problems that confronts the archaeologist is notoriously the determination of the relative age of his finds. And if an object makes its appearance in some particular level, it often remains to be decided whether it belongs to that level or whether it was carried down to that level, owing to some subsequent disturbance. It is easy to imagine the corresponding doubts that arise in the case of analytic constructions. The analyst, as we have said, works under more favorable conditions than the archaeologist, since he has at his disposal material which can have no counterpart in excavations, such as the repetitions of reactions dating from infancy and all that is indicated by the transference in connection with these repetitions. But in addition to this, it must be borne in mind that the excavator is dealing with destroyed objects of which large and important portions have quite certainly been lost by mechanical violence, by fire, and by plundering. No amount of effort can result in their discovery and lead to their being united with the surviving remains. The one and only course open is that of reconstruction, which for this reason can often reach only a certain degree of probability. But it is different with the psychical object whose early history the analyst is seeking to recover. Here we are regularly met by a situation which with the archeological object occurs only in such rare circumstances as those of Pompeii or of the tomb of Tutankhamun. All of the essentials are preserved. Even things that seem completely forgotten are present somehow and somewhere and have merely been buried and made inaccessible to the subject. Indeed, it may, as we know, be doubted whether any psychical structure can really be the victim of total destruction. It depends only upon analytic technique whether we shall succeed in bringing what is concealed completely to light. There are only two other facts that weigh against the extraordinary advantage which is thus enjoyed by the work of analysis. namely that psychical objects are incomparably more complicated than the excavator's material ones, and that we have insufficient knowledge of what we may expect to find, since their finer structure contains so much that is still mysterious. But our comparison between the two forms of work can go no further than this, for the main difference between them lies in the fact that for the archaeologist, the reconstruction is the aim and end of his endeavors, while for analysis, the construction is only a preliminary labor. That's the end of part one. That's another long analogy, just like in Civilization and its Discontents. Um, so I'm going to hand this over to you now, Tom to unpack it a little bit for us, you know, what's Freud getting at here? 
Well, it certainly is a long analogy, isn't it? Um, it's so f full of detail and information. Um, you can clearly see as well, I think, that it's a crucial analogy for Freud. As you mentioned, we have something of similar weight in civilization and its discontents, where Freud compared the layers of the mind to the city of Rome throughout the ages. In fact, this analogy in one form or another is there from the very beginning of Freud's psychoanalytic work. So it first appears in an extended form in the Aetiology of Hysteria, and that's uh, published in 1896, where the analyst is compared to an explorer who arrives at, at an undiscovered land and digs into the earth to discover connections with the visible ruins that appear at ground level. And as I said, the analogy is there throughout Freud's work, but it, it's never a fixed and stable analogy. For Freud, archaeology and psychoanalysis always exist in a dynamic relationship, each changing and being changed by the other. Next week, we'll look a little more closely at this early iteration of the archaeological analogy and its subsequent developments. When we looked at civilization and its discontents, you'll remember that one of the key points that came through was Freud's libidinal cathexis to his material, his attachment and his desire that shines through his prose. You'll remember how rich and luscious his descriptions of the monuments of Rome through the ages was. I think you still get that impression from this passage. But I feel that the overriding concern here is one of legitimacy. So those words that you read, Jamie, in the middle of that section really stand out for me. Freud writes, both of them have the undisputed right to reconstruct by means of supplementing and combining the surviving remains. The notion of an undisputed right, it's extremely strong, isn't it? I mean, even forceful in a way. I think we have to remember that Freud was continually dealing with criticisms that psychoanalysis was not a proper science. So a few years before this paper, he wrote a text entitled A Question of a Weltanschauung, or a Worldview in which he rigorously defended the rights of psychoanalysis to be identified as a science. Again, this was an ongoing concern for Freud. So by continually drawing these parallels between the relatively new science of archaeology, which was taught in the academy, and the practice of psychoanalysis, Freud is claiming credibility for psychoanalysis. The undisputed right is that which the scientist can claim, the expert in the field who is backed up by the institutional authority. One of the things that's interesting about psychoanalysis, of course, is that whilst claiming that authority of science, that undisputed right, psychoanalysis at the same time undermines the foundations upon which that right is established. After Freud, science can no longer be thought of without reference to the scientist. Its objectivity is no longer safeguarded. Anyway, more on that another time. 
Where the comparison between the two disciplines breaks down is that for the archaeologist, the work of construction is an end point, whereas for the analyst, it's just the beginning. Beautifully put by you and by Freud. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for a technical paper, though, it feels so romantic, actually, absolutely. in a lot of ways, yeah. you know, yeah, fantasizing absolutely. of these other worlds. Well, he begins part two by distinguishing the difference between an interpretation and a construction. And it, is, it seems to suggest that not enough is made of the, the role of constructions in analysis. Now, of course, the first book of psychoanalysis authored by Freud, The Interpretation of Dreams, was The Interpretation of Dreams. So this might appear to be a slightly odd statement, really, for Freud to make. And um, he goes on to clarify that interpretation applies to a single element of the material, such as an association or a parapraxis, whereas a construction refers to the presentation of a forgotten piece of the patient's childhood history by the analyst. So Freud gives the following example, and this is from the text. He says, up to your nth year, you regarded yourself as the sole and unlimited possessor of your mother. Then came another baby and brought you grave dis disillusionment. Your mother left you for some time, and even after her reappearance, she was never again devoted to you exclusively. Your feelings towards your mother became ambivalent, and your father gained new importance for you, and so on. It's the end of the quote. But if the analyst is constructing memories, how can we be sure that these are not just the fantasies of the analyst? You know, what does Freud think about the truth of these constructions? Mm. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think the first thing, actually, just taking back a bit, the first thing that jumps out on me um, after listening to you reading that passage, Jamie, is the actual example that Freud gives. It's not a random example at all, is it? It's specifically Oedipal. So I think we should bear that in mind before we go further. The constructions that Freud is referring to invariably would involve infantile sexuality within the Oedipal framework. And such material, as we've discussed previously, would invariably be met with by resistance. So with the patient's no. But what's interesting here is that Freud goes on to argue that the analyst should be sceptical of the patient when they say yes, when they agree with a construction, just as much as they are when the patient says no. So a plain yes, a plain agreement can be meaningless. In fact, argues Freud, it can be a convenient tool for a resistance to make use of in order to keep the truth concealed for longer. Only if the patient's yes, or his agreement, is followed by the appearance of fresh material, only then should we accept it. Similarly, a no might be a sign of resistance, that we've hit upon the truth, which the patient's resistance is desperate to conceal. But this is not necessarily what's happening. It may be, that only a small fragment of the truth is contained within the construction and that the construction won't be accepted until it becomes a more complete approximation to the truth. As in associations, it's the indirect forms of confirmation that Freud suggests are the most likely signs 
that a construction has hit upon the truth. So when a patient replies, I didn't ever think that, or I shouldn't ever have thought that, what they're really saying is, you are right this time about my unconscious. Sadly, this formula is much more likely to be expressed after an individual interpretation rather than after an overarching construction. What attests to the truth value of a construction is not whether it's accepted by the patient or not, but it's whether it produces a reaction in the patient, either by producing more scenes and more material or in the case of a negative therapeutic reaction, so that the patient's symptoms or his general condition become aggravated. We're reminded here at the end of part two that constructions may prove to be useful for a time, and then they may be discarded later on. You know, psychoanalysis is a process, and unlike other forms of treatment, it is not determined by measurable outcomes and quick fix solutions. It has a dynamic of working through over the course of time, rather than by definition in the moment. Well, we come on then in the third and the final part of the paper to a fascinating discussion about the nature of truth in relation to constructions. Now the discussion starts with the following couple of sen sentences of Freud, he says. <clears throat> the path that starts from the analyst's construction ought to end in the patient's recollection, but it does not always lead so far. Quite often, we do not succeed in bringing the patient to recollect what has been repressed. Instead of that, if the analysis is carried out correctly, we produce in him an assured conviction of the truth of the construction, which achieves the same therapeutic result as a recaptured memory. Tom, what does Freud have to say about the relationship between constructions, truth, and memory? Well, Jamie, in, in part three, I think we really get to see Freud draw out some of those deeper, more philosophical implications of his discussion. So whilst the analytic exchange may approximate itself to truth, the recollection of the constructed scene is really an ideal point. What the patient is often left with is the assured conviction of the truth of a construction, which achieves the same therapeutic result as if the memory had been recaptured. Now, in that earlier passage that you read about archaeology, Jamie, Freud had subtly added the prefix re to the word construction. So construction is intimately bound up with reconstruction, suggesting the repairing of something that was originally intact, but had since been shattered. Now we have this word recapture of a memory, suggesting that the memory was there previously and had since been repressed, perhaps. We might remember that Freud wrote in the studies on hysteria that hysterics fall ill from the reminiscences. So we might ask ourselves, where is the original event in all of this? Where is 
the reality to which the memory is connected. It almost feels as if the original event is disappearing under the shadow of the lost memory that represents it. This temporal disruption, this displacing of cause and effect, and we've come across this before, haven't we, in Freud's notion of deferred action. But the assured conviction of the truth of a construction seems to be key for Freud. Because of the mechanisms of the unconscious, we're never dealing with simple equivalents. This never directly equals that. Because displacements and condensations are the tools of unconscious desire. So sometimes patients can react to a construction with a remembered scene which is ultra clear to them. That's in Freud's words in which faces or the contours of a room have appeared with extreme clarity. In instances such as this, Freud suggests that we're dealing with the mechanism of displacement. So the upward drive of the repressed, which has been stirred into activity by the construction, has, in Freud's words, striven to carry out the important, mem to carry the, sorry, the important memory trace into consciousness, but a resistance has succeeded, not, it is true, in stopping that movement, but by displacing it onto objects of minor significance. And we're reminded here of the dynamic nature of the unconscious, aren't we? Of the fact that the psyche is a site of an interplay of forces. Constructions then are effective when they are productive of new meanings and associations or in mixing memory with desire, in T.S. Eliot's words. Mm. Well, okay, so right at the end of the text, Freud introduces the theme of hallucinations and delusions within the contexts of construction. It seems to be an important and, and pretty complex way to conclude, though. What do you think about that? Well, it is a very interesting conclusion to this text, isn't it? I mean, one, one thing we don't have is a nice, tidy summing up of Freud's position. It's more as if Freud is saying, well, we've seen how constructions rarely reach back to original truth. So let's see how this might affect the rest of our thinking. How far can we take this idea? Our constructions are effective because they contain a kernel of historical truth. So what about hallucinations? And even the delusions of psychotics, asks Freud. Perhaps rather than trying to convince the patient of the error of their delusion and attempting to bring them back to reality, we should recognize the kernel of truth that the delusion contains. This recognition might lead to common ground upon which therapeutic work could commence. So Freud tantalizes us here by suggesting that psychoanalysis could perhaps develop in the direction of the treatment of the psychosis, not just neurosis. It kind of feels fitting, I think, at this stage, that rather than developing that point much further, Freud just leaves us with another analogy. He writes, but nonetheless, I have not been able to resist the seduction of an analogy. 
The delusions of patience appear to me to be the equivalence of the constructions which we have built up in the course of an analytic treatment. For it is seduced by this analogy, but also he seduces us at the same time with this tantalizing sentence. The word seduction, of course, also takes us back to the seduction theory, which Freud rejected as part of his move towards the primacy of fantasy and the invention of psychoanalysis. I'm going to finish, I think, with the, the following lines from Freud right at the end of this text, which suggest another return of over 40 years after of variations to the studies in hysteria. And Freud writes, in this way, a proposition that I originally asserted only of hysteria would also apply to delusions, namely that those who are subject to them are suffering from their own reminiscences. A lovely way to conclude. Thank you, Tom. It was great to be back in the in the podcasting seat again. Um, and for those of you listening at home, thank you. Join us next time when Tom will be interviewing Professor Miriam Leonard from University College London about the exhibition on at the Freud Museum and the digital archive, Freud's Antiquity. And uh, they will be looking at Freud's lifelong fascination for antiquity, tracing the archaeological analogy through his work and much else. This has been another episode of Freud in Focus, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>